Hello, everyone. This is Jordan Smart. Welcome to Affirmative Interaction. We have almost everyone here. So we don't have Garrison and Simone here yet or today, but we do have Danny, which is very exciting. <laughs> Danny, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Um, of course, we have Michael Nixon, Logan, and Adrian Esther. I'm your host, Jordan Smart. And today, before we get into our topics, let's just see how everyone is doing. Uh, pretty quickly, I am not doing great um, because I went to work today. I put my key and I tried to start my car, you know, by turning the ignition as most people do. And the engine just went kaput. So currently my car is just stuck in my partner's parking garage and there is no hope for me or for my children. Mike, how are you, you doing? Spell, I know can you work. spell kaput before you go to me? Can you spell kaput? I'm just <laughs> interested. Uh, I believe it's spelled K-A-P-U-T. Uh, Mike, I also love the shirt. Is it from? Is it for Forever 21? And But besides that, how, <laughs> how has Andrew's been? Um, and how has, you know, you've actually been, you had an initiative, excuse me, for a couple of years now, and some news has come out about the future of that initiative. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. Well, first of all, Forever what's up, 21. everybody? Good to be back. Um, that was a solid Forever 21 joke. This, For the record, this is J. Crew. Uh, <laughs> put, some, put some respect on my wardrobe. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, hey, we're we're halfway through week three. We're still open here at Andrews. You know, God is good. I mean, shout shout out to to that and, and all the folks that are a part of our reopening team and the testing protocols and the masking, social distancing. Um, it's been working well thus far, so we'll just kind of keep going with that for as long as we can. Um, yeah, so in regards to Against the Wall, we we just um, announced that we're discontinuing that. For those who don't know, it's a, um, sort of an initiative or movement that I started along with uh, my good friend Ty Gibson and some others. Um, I missed that, Logan. Were you, were you, are you wearing the shirt? Is that what? Oh, is that oh yeah, that? we got it. We got the shirt. Oh, my God. Appreciate that. Um, I still and, got mine too, by the way. I love wearing it. Yeah, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be a relic now, I guess. Uh, I still have a bunch left, so I can send one to everybody who who wants one. Just hit me up, um, and we'll work out something for the shipping. But I just have a bunch of them that I that you know we never sold or anything. But um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot that went into it. I mean, I won't you know bore you with all the details. Um, but we did release a statement which kind of chronicles some of the reasons why um, it was sort of prompted really by just a realization from both of us that we weren't giving the kind of, I guess, energy and effort to it that it needed to continue to be sustained. Um, and then there are some personal things, a multitude of personal things for both of us that have come up more recently um, that led to us just thinking that um, it just needed to be discontinued. And, and so um, it's a bit sad. Uh, there, there's a lot that went into it. I think there's a lot of potential. There are a lot of things that we were able to accomplish. A lot of stuff is still left undone. Um, 
but it's really hard to sustain something in your spare time is really what I've learned, uh, particularly when you get less and less of that um, and, and you don't necessarily have a framework or the support uh, to help sustain something. And so that's a lesson learned for sure. Um, it's not the end of our advocacy on this issue or topic by any stretch of the imagination that will continue, um, but someone else will have to spark some sort of a movement to, to hold the church accountable. I'll, I'll, I'll keep doing that on an individual basis. Um, but I think in sparking it, we were really hopeful that the movement would lead to a sustainable structure, but we just weren't able to capture that, unfortunately. So yeah, we did some good work, ties the homie. There's no like scandal or anything. We're still really good friends, um, but it was just kind of time to say goodbye to that. So it's a little bit uh, heartbreaking on some levels, but hey, we had to do what we had to do. So, uh, so shout out to everyone who supported it and who, um, you know, participated in it and, um, you know, promoted, whether it was sharing an article or contributing, whatever the case may be, we really appreciated that. And it, it helped it get to the point that it got ultimately. So, yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, Danny, we're so glad again that you're back with us. I personally was about to send out an Amber Alert because I have not seen you in so long. But tell us, what have you been up to these past few weeks? Um, a lot of work. Uh, work totally picked up. I, my caseload has grown immensely. Um, for people who don't know, I'm a case manager with human trafficking survivors. And I specifically work with uh, youth in DJS. So I've been doing like assessments. A lot of teens are bored right now or avoiding going back to school online and are somehow ending up in detention. And I am somehow doing assessments with all of them. So, um, but it's great. Just, I love my job. It's just been really, really a lot. And uh, nine to five doesn't exist uh, right now for me. So, it's cool to finally have gotten off of work early enough to join the podcast. Um, you also haven't seen me because I deleted my Facebook. So um, that is gone and uh, I'm better for it as would most of us be if Facebook did not exist. So yeah. Amen. Uh, Social Network is also a pretty solid movie. Love David Fincher. Um, Adrian and Esther, greetings from on high. I actually got to meet up with these guys, which was very exciting. We walked from the Washington Monument to Bip and Bop, and my legs are still tired. How have you guys spent this holiday weekend? What have you been up to? Please tell us how you've been doing. Same old, same old, bro. Honestly, can't can't complain. What? Yeah, it's been good. Very, I'm very tired. It's like you you exert a lot of energy through screens that you don't think about. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's been good. The long weekend was good. Um, we celebrated my dad's birthday. Mm -hmm. It was good. He's 63, I think. Yeah, no, <laughs> I don't have any other updates. 
I mean, I'm, honestly, your dad could pass for 40. Like, I, I'm so surprised that he's literally 62. That's kind of wild. I, I was honestly surprised when she told me their age also because, like, they're both very healthy. For both mm-hmm. of them. So, I mean, just praise for both of them because, you know, we want them to live forever. So Definitely, definitely. So, Logan, um, I understand that you also have just been – you know, chilling in California, existing, and I'm actually excited to hear some sort of deprecate, self-deprecating remarks. I'm just gonna give you the floor right now. Oh, true. Um, well, California's on fire right now, so it's like really hazy outside. It looks like it's probably like right before sunset, and it, it it's been dark all day. Um, I might drop a pic in the comments later, but it's been. Um, typically, I don't turn my lights on in the daytime because I have good natural light, and I couldn't find things this morning. It was so dark in my bedroom. Um, I, I way overslept because it was it was just really weird. Ash was covering my car when I went out there this morning, using my car to just go get coffee because that's that's my current life right now. But um, yeah, so it's kind of kind of weird. Um, I mean, I'm okay. We're not. My mom is all worried, but you know, there are a lot of people that aren't okay in California right now. Uh, one of the major fires started this weekend because, or, or they just found out because of a gender reveal party where they, there was like an, exp- you know, they pyrotechnics and they did it in a place that like literally. So, you know, these, these trends are kind of pointless when we're bringing up this conversation, but yeah, but I would like to interject and give a shout out to Michael Nixon and Ty Gibson because you know, we, we talked about Against the Wall, but that was the Lord's work. I mean, they brought the gospel to campuses. I was able to attend the one at Andrews University and the one at Southern as well. And, you know, just for Michael and Ty being, you know, Michael being the VP of Diversity and Inclusion and Ty Gibson being a big name in these conversations to, to basically put their emails on the line for essentially racists all over the Adventist church just to email them and tell them how stupid everything they're doing is and how actually reverse racist everything is. I mean, Michael shared with us some of the things that people have said to him and Ty, the, you know, Ty preaches on these topics. And, you know, as Ty, he's, you know, kind of a guy that branches all conservative and liberal areas of Adventism and getting pulled aside by people to tell him that, you know, his his whole narrative is broken and he's, you know, being lied to and liberal narratives and all this stuff. Just to, for them to, to put it out there, it was, you know, I just want to applaud that because that's not something you had to do. No one was paying you to do this. You know, I went to the one in uh, uh, at Southern when we were having to debate literal people that believe that systemic racism doesn't exist and telling us that we're insane for thinking that racism is still a problem And at that point, 2018. And it's just like big ups to you, Nixon. I applaud you and Ty, if you ever listen to this, you know, uh, just guys that I look I look highly up to for them putting their their experiences on the line like that and, and using their voices in that way. So. I appreciate that, bro. Thanks for saying that. I really do. Um, I, can I can I also say real quick, Jordan? Um, I want to I want to yes, shout out um, my parents. They actually celebrated their thirty fifth wedding anniversary. Hey, hey, hey. uh, thirty five years is a long time, bro. Oof. So shout out to them for sure. And my mom actually has a birthday coming up. If I said how old she's turning, I'd get excommunicated. She definitely does not look her age. She looks like she's not a day over 40. So I love you, mom. I know you're watching. Shout out to you as well. Excellent. Yo, I'm honestly loving just the positivity and love. I had a rough day, but I'm definitely feeling better being on the show with with you guys. Excuse me. Okay. 
So if you are watching with us, please let us know where you're watching from. Um, I'm also happy to announce that Jose uh, Bourget is also really blowing up the the comment section and calling me out by name. And if you, you keep you, it up, you I will be mentioning you. <laughs> My guy but said the please. founders of racism don't believe in racism. That's great. <laughs> uh, that was a gold comment. Yeah. So, yeah, please let us know where you're watching. And please don't forget to follow our podcast and Apple Podcasts. We're also on Spotify, too. And we are also on Instagram, of course, Facebook. And we are also on YouTube. Just search Affirmative Interaction. And you'll find us there. You can stream from uh, many of those places. And you can follow in all those places. So, unfortunately, um, another person has been come has become a victim of police brutality. And this one really hit home for me personally and for Adrian, of course, because we are both from Rochester, New York. Adrian, could you tell us a little bit about what happened with Daniel Prude and just give us the background and the story behind this? Yeah, so um, the the story in some ways is, is a kind of complicated one. Um, but I think primarily the focus is uh, Daniel Prude and his brother Joe, right? Um, so this took place earlier in March where um, Joe recognized that um, Daniel was kind of having somewhat of an episode. And so um, in instinctively he decides that he, he's gonna call the, the police um, once he realized that after Daniel had his episode in their house, he ran outside um, and they had no idea where he went. And so the cop comes over and while the cop is there asking Joe, the older brother, asking him questions about where his brother might've gone, which way did he go, et cetera. Um, they get a call over the radio that the cop and Joe hear and Joe says, that's my brother. He can tell by the description that it's a young black man um, who's claiming to be sick. Uh, and there is some blood on his shirt. He's not really speaking clearly. And Dan Joe immediately knew that was Daniel. Um, and I'm assuming that there have probably been other instances. Uh, what we learned was that uh, Joe actually brought Daniel to the hospital earlier because of some concerns for his mental health. And the story gets kind of odd as things kind of play out. So what we learn is, um, for context, this is in the middle of the pandemic. So this is March where it's like at its peak, right? We're like, we're not touching anyone. We're not going near anyone. anyone. Everything is closed down. So uh, a, a couple of days, no, later that day, excuse me, the cop comes back to Joe's house to let him know that his brother is in the hospital. Now, Joe just probably thought, based off of what the New York Times said, he thought it was just like, hey, his brother's out in the cold. He wasn't wearing all of his all of his clothes, so maybe he got sick, like hypothermia, something like that. Um, but he can't go and visit his brother, right, because of COVID. And it wasn't until a week later that the doctor comes in and um, tells him that hey, you can come visit your brother, but he the doctor also mentions 
that you can take Daniel off life support. Now, that was something that kind of struck Joe as terribly confusing because he is trying to figure out what exactly took place from now to previously when he was told by the officer that his brother was in the hospital. And so there's a lot of legal battles happening where um, Joe Joe works with his lawyers and he has um, uh, his lawyers work with him to file a preservation letter to the city of Rochester to essentially hold on to every document paper that you have for his brother because they want to get all the information that they can. The second thing that they do is they request that the police officers turn over the body camera for what happened when they got uh, Daniel Prude and brought him to the hospital. Officers don't hear, they, they don't hear back from the officers at all. Officers don't get back to them. And they just kind of assume that this is still in the middle of kind of that heightened pandemic moment where things are kind of crazy. So they just figured, all right, cops just got their hands full. But time goes on and they never hear from the officers, not until a couple of weeks later where officers come out and uh, basically say, um that they did their own investigation on the Daniel Prude uh situation and basically um exonerate in some ways the officers who are handling it. Now they're giving out this information saying that they have read it and they said that these cop these cops did everything under proper protocol and they handled it perfectly and adequately. And they're making all of these statements, but the body cam footage is never released to the Prude family. Now, what's also happening is the state uh, attorney general, who is uh, Letitia James, she is also doing her own investigation. And I can assume that um, she got a hold of that, that body camera footage and she probably already knew that there's something concerning going on, right? Now, Prude doesn't fully know all of that information yet. The Prude family doesn't know. And so a few weeks go by and now um, uh, it's actually going on to May, right? And the state AG brings the Prude family into her office um, and she shows them the footage. And immediately um, there's outrage. And the reason why there is uh, immediate outrage is because before the Prude family go, um, they get the the uh, information from the uh, doctors who looked over Daniel's body to try to figure out how he died. And they send the information to the Prude family and tell them that Daniel died due to complications of asphyxia, which is obviously like suffocation. So when you put those two informations together, you can see um, that the officers were clearly hiding something that was damaging and tragic. And so uh, once that information comes out, uh, Daniel's family, Joe, his wife, his, his parents, they put the video out. And um, that's led to a lot of protests and it's forced the police chief, it's forced the mayor, uh, lovely Warren of the city of Rochester to answer some questions. And now it gets even more complicated when you learn that 
Um, there seems to be somewhat of a cover-up. One, the police chief um, was clearly not being fully honest about what took place um, with Daniel. When you watch that, that video footage, not only do you see that the officers are not adequate in handling a patient that has some mental concerns, you, you sense a lack of empathy. There, there's an audio footage that the New York Times played where he, when Daniel is starting to throw up and saliva is kind of coming out, the cops are making subtle jokes, right? Like they're not, they're not fully being responsible or mature, uh, which clearly fuels the fact that they did not care about uh, Daniel's well-being. And then you see that the mayor uh, is essentially stating that she didn't release the footage to the public because the state AG told her not to because it would interfere with her election, with her, um, sorry, investigation. Um, and then the state AG comes out and basically says, no, like that's not true, which is also putting lovely Warren, the mayor on a hot seat because they're like, why, why would you lie about something that crucial um, and obviously many people are concluding that she made the decision to lie about releasing the footage due to political capital. Um, she doesn't want to ruin perhaps her chances of getting reelected. Um, as you can see, uh, my sister, um, Jasmine, she's been at some of the protests. She's been promoting it uh, a lot on social media. And um, essentially, she says local leaders are also asking her to resign because they met with her and the police chief over a year ago to discuss police reform and they were dismissed. She could have avoided this. She doesn't care. And so there, there is a clear distrust towards Mayor Lovely Warren, uh, primarily because she is a Black woman and she grew up in Rochester. Um, she 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 grew up in the hood like she she's with these people she knows what it's like she knows the history of what's happened with black people primarily in rochester that typically have a large white police force um and so that that's kind of where we're at now protests broke out and i'm, I'm very glad that new york times had um reporters at the scene of the protests because what we're hearing from the democratic chronicle which is the local paper and the police force is very similar to things that we saw happen in DC and Chicago and Indy, where what the supposed official report is not matching up with what videos of what protesters are saying. You had people saying that protesters essentially attacked the cops and, and the cops were provoked and retaliated, right? But you had videos of protesters in footage, photos showing the exact opposite. Police unprovoked uh, advanced and shot uh, tear gas and rubber bullets at the Rochester uh, protesters. In fact, you can hear in the audio where the, one of the New York Times reporters said, if I wasn't there, if I didn't know any better, I would have assumed that the protesters yeah. did something. Um, and then you, you, you can see that it, incidents like that are going to fuel that concern um, of just the, the lack of trust, not with just the police force, but this machine that you think that, that we kind of see exist, uh, using to kind of protect the image, whether it's politicians, whether it is corporations, whether it is newspaper and media outlets that are all kind of trying to create that narrative that it's just a bunch of protesters that 
took their amendment too far and ended up getting violent with the cops. And so the cops had to retaliate in such a manner. Um, and that's, that's where we are now. Um, I, I just want to take a moment to just shout out my sister. Um, she's been keeping us updated. She's been there on the ground. She's been with a lot of the, the, um, the activists that have been in Rochester. Uh, I, I definitely should have asked you to come on here because you, you have literally been in it and you experienced a lot of what these cops did. And I just want to affirm the work that she's been doing um, and using her voice. And I mean, she, she, she never fails to show me more ways of inspiring to be like her. So I, I just wanted to affirm her and what she's doing. But I wanted to open up the floor up to you guys because I know that was just a mouthful and a lot of information. Um, but I, I, I want to hear your thoughts on, on kind of what's been on your hearts after kind of learning all this information. Yeah, can, can I just, and first of all, Adrian, thanks for, I mean, that was really helpful because um, I listened to the podcast, but you even added in some added context that's really helpful for, for me to hear. Um, and I, I don't want to like shift the conversation, but, you know, it would maybe be helpful, at least for me, from my perspective, um, maybe for you. And I know you and Jordan having, you know, grown up in Rochester and that kind of a thing. And these conversations, I'm sure, having been around for a bit. Like, could you guys just give us maybe some context around? Because in all these different, you know, communities, you there's like a Daniel Prude incident, right? And, yeah. and now everybody's watching, and there's the conversation around the incident, but oftentimes that's just more of like the the tip of the spear of a long history of things that have been happening within a community that you know folks who've lived there have kind of seen and experienced on different levels and it just never maybe rose to the surface yeah so can you guys maybe talk a little bit about um just maybe sort of your insight and perspective into like what what this culminating moment kind of means for this discussion around policing and things of that nature in rochester specifically i have to say you know i think and that's such a great, uh, such a great question, Mike, because it always seems as if, you know, in a lot of our police forces, in whatever town you may be from, it could be your hometown or even a place where you're living, you know, you don't see how problematic or even corrupt your police department is until something like this is unveiled. And thinking about it, I know growing up. Uh, I've had interactions with police that I didn't appreciate when I was younger at all. Um, I was definitely profiled when I was maybe like 12, 13 years old. Yeah. And my friends had interactions with police numerous times. And, you know, I always feel like there was a disconnect because growing up, uh, my church, Jefferson Avenue, we would have police chiefs, you know, come into our church. I remember one time they we had a discussion on what we should do if a shooter came into the church over the safety protocols. But there was always a disconnect between the police we would see in church and then how we would see police act on our local television or interact with our family or, or community at church. And this just shows that so many police departments have, a, have quite a rotten underbelly. And when it shows, it really shows. And 
that is why I feel like the system of policing just across the country, we need to seriously look at it and seriously consider if overhauling it from the ground up is what we need to do. Because it seems as if no police department is exempt from some sort of incredibly disgusting abuse of force or sheer lack of compassion. And I, I would probably add one of the things that you start to notice as you get older um, in in Rochester is that it it resembles um, in terms of like a racial divide um, a lot of different cities. So you you have places like Rochester, um, like the city of Rochester um, on the west side, or even like the the east side of it that are predominantly black and um, Hispanic. And then you've got like the suburbs area um, that is predominantly white, very rural. Um, and, and you can see that clear economic change, whether it's it's uh, the housing looks very different, the schooling looks extremely different. Um, but one of the striking things like what Jordan alluded to that I, I can just try to continue on with is um, the police force that you tend to see in, Ro in Western New York in general, Rochester, Syracuse, Buffalo, that police force has no, in, in, in any way, emotional uh, or historical connection to like the actual city, right? You have a lot of white officers coming from those suburban rural areas um, going into the city part of Rochester um, and, and we have seen some of the problems that arise, uh, arrive from that. Um, there's my sister. So glad you could make it. Are you muted? I can't tell if you're muted. No, I'm not muted. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I think that that's part of the concern that, that even Jordan is talking about is these cops that they're sending into the city, they don't, they don't know us. They, and so like, they have no incentive to, to care about our well-being. But one of the things that it also exposes is like there's it's often like a clear divide of like uh, the red versus blue parts in Rochester. Right. And those cops are coming from these red parts of our city, enforcing the law in these predominantly black and Hispanic neighborhoods. And like we we have to realize that, like, before these people are cops or how they prioritize their identity, they're typically white Republican conservative um, race deniers before they consider themselves a police officer. And, and they bring these problematic racist views into their policing and you see it, you, you see it play out. And I, I think that that's also part of the problem that we're having, perhaps not just in Rochester, but it's in policing in general. Um, we're, we're, we are naive into thinking that this cop is going to somehow, this, this badge on a police officer is going to somehow change um, their moral compass when it comes to the topic of race. Cause it just, it won't, it won't. Or it does, but negatively. But negatively, yes. So I will say, and thank you for sharing that, Adrian. I will say that if you ever believe that affirmative interaction is not full of surprises, we have now proven you wrong. Uh, we are glad to have Jasmine on the show with us. And we thought it was important for Jasmine to be on the show because 
Again, me and Adrian are quite proud. She's our family. She's my cousin. She's Adrian's sister. She's also a, uh, a an incredible educator at, at her local school. But Jasmine is also, I would say, an activist. Uh, this These past few days and over the weekend, she has been out on the streets, on the ground, protesting for black and brown lives. And Jasmine, can you just tell us a little bit about your experience down there. I mean, give us what it was like to be there on the ground in the midst of what was going on. Um, it's a lie. I feel like I feel like I'm still processing. I also don't really have a voice because of it. Um, so that's coming back. But it, I don't, I don't like. I feel like I'm still trying to um, understand why we were met with the force we were met. I think that's like everyone's biggest concern is that um, the police, they, it, it felt like it's at least when the, the height of the, the moments, like the height of all of it, it kind of just felt like we were, they were just having target practice. Um, you know, they were trying to find different ways, different areas they could hide to shoot at us. Um, it got to the point where it was just inhumane. They were targeting, like I had um, posted, they were targeting medics, press. They were threatening medics that if you helped people, um, we're going to arrest you. So drop your bags and leave or you're getting arrested. Um, which, you know, in the world, like in like that would be considered a war crime. But, you know, right here, that's fine. Um, they like it's, it's just been so many things. And every single day it escalated. Um, every day we, our protests have been deemed unlawful, except for one day um, when the mayor decided to, and which we all feel is performative. She brought the, like the elders out, more elders, because I'm like, don't, we also didn't agree with that because there were elders that have already been with us from the start. But they started this whole thing um, with elders coming out. And that was the only day that the police didn't shoot at us. Um, and up until well, yesterday as well. But from the start of the protest up until Sunday, that was the first day. And um, yesterday, they did not shoot at us, but they've just started again to say that our protests are unlawful. Um, it's just, so we feel that it's gonna start to escalate again. We know that we are anticipating that at some point by the end of the week or this weekend, they're going to um, be using force, um, especially with our the police chief stepping down and like the whole commanding, all of the commanding officers stepping down we're pretty sure that they're not going to um, be using as much restraint. I feel like the police chief may have stopped some things for the sake of his uh, reputation, but now he kind of doesn't have to worry about that anymore. So we're just kind of worried about what's happening. But I think the biggest issue is just the lies that have been told about the protests. And I think that's what everyone is just the most angry about. Um, we just, we really feel gaslighted. Um, like they were tweeting last night, like the police department's official Twitter, they keep doing this. They'll tweet, the protesters have rocks. The protesters are shooting bottles. The protesters are shooting fireworks. They're saying things like that. And it's like, we're not doing anything. Like it'll be in the middle of us chanting or in the middle of like someone is speaking. We'll have, we have poetry. Like we'll have people singing. Like we actually have performances. Then we're like, then it's also in, um, informative. We're telling people like how to register. They have people there to register people to vote. So they're like, don't be embarrassed. We know that it might be close to election time, but if you haven't registered, we have people here to register you. They have like counselors. Even that, that's what I'm saying, like just trying to process all my thoughts. Even just that, they're trying to accuse us of not being organized. 
that's also not true. We have our medics, we have the, you know, and you can identify by color, you have the organizers, we have um, counseling staff, therapists on site to help people process what they're seeing and what they're experiencing in the moment. Um, they also have a colored tape for kids. So anyone who's 19 and younger, if you see them with that colored tape by themselves, you keep them with you because police are targeting young kids as well, trying to arrest them. And we're trying to make sure that we're protecting, I mean, black and brown bodies, but especially our kids so that they're not getting records before they're even adults. So, um, you know, there's been a lot of that going on. Our allies have literally been amazing. I have so much body armor now to protect myself and everything except for like two pieces was given to me by allies. Um, they have made sure that no black or brown person has been arrested alone. They make sure that even if they're trying to target black and brown people, that they um, that like they literally just like form a barrier around those people so that the police can't arrest them. And one of them do like, it's just been, it's like family. And I think the police are actually scared because they weren't expecting the community to come together this way. I've made over 10 friends now and I would, and I can call them friends because what we've experienced in the last five days, I haven't experienced with some people I've known my whole life. Like I've had friends who literally were looking out to make sure like I just, I didn't get really hurt. Um, we had a friend who did, she got shot in the eye. Um, um, we are still like trying to just to go to the doctor. So we're still trying to wait some updates on that to see what's going on. But yeah, like a lot of people have been hurt. They have been illegally using the materials that are given to them to try for for crowd control. Like the pepper bullets supposed to be shot at the ground. They're shooting it directly at us. Um, the tear can the tear gas canisters, they were legit throwing those at people. Um, there's they were throwing fireworks at us. They shot fireworks into the crowd. Um, yeah, it's just been kind of like a war zone every night. That's just kind of what it sounds like and what it looks like. Wow. Um, first of all, thank you for just that context. Thank you for sort of impromptu. I know we kind of put you on the spot and we're just like, Hey, come through. But, uh, that was just powerful just to hear it from someone who's there, you know? Um, because these are the kinds of stories and perspectives that I don't think are centered enough um, in these moments. Um, and so also thank you for just the work you're doing on the ground floor in a really just complex and, and crazy and uncertain time. And, and one of the quick things that I just want to say just in reflection to what you just shared and to what we've been talking about is like, I don't know. It's just kind of a reminder, and this is not like a groundbreaking point, but what what is jumping out of my head is that um, it's like the whole system is just like trash, man. Like the, like every like everything, you know. We've talked about like the mayor's office, and obviously local police and chief of police, and it's like when when you are relying upon people to overturn a system that are incentivized to keep that system going because of self-preservation and personal upward mobility and all those different kinds of things. You know, it's not to say that you won't have a person who can do some good because there have been people who have, but you know, eight to nine times out of 10, you're gonna have someone operating in a way that just continues the system going because it's in their own self-interest and benefit, you know? And so when we have conversations about like abolishing the beliefs the police and things of that nature. And people look at that as so radical. 
Um, I think that radical issues demand radical change because again, it's just like the way that it's set up and this whole idea that um, local government and police, you know, uh, departments and, and things of that nature that are so invested with each other and working together to believe that they can police themselves and, you know, you know, uh, investigate themselves and all these different things. And, you know, it, it wasn't until, you know, Daniel's brother just kind of was feeling like, you know what, you know, something's not right. And how many people have felt like in their stomach, like, yeah, something's not right here, but they just kind of let it go. Like, you know, they, they wouldn't lie to me about what happened, you know, and my brother did have issues because, you know, Daniel obviously was working through issues. So he, his brother could have very easily just brushed it off. And, you know, it wasn't until they started prodding a bit more and, you know, thank God for, you know, a freedom of information law request. And as that starts to, you know, unpack, now they're like, whoa, this thing we tried to cover up is starting to come back to the surface. And it took so long for it all to come out. And it just is a reminder that there have to be mechanisms in place that work better because it can't be dependent upon somebody's gut feeling that something's wrong. Because, because you know, how many times has that not necessarily led to someone pursuing anything further? And we would have never known what happened in this instance, even though, you know, because we're always told, yeah, everybody get body cameras and all this different type of stuff. Well, how many situations have we heard of where the body cameras aren't on or the car cameras aren't on? Or if they have the body camera footage, they find ways to not release it. Or a police chief tells a mayor, nah, that's not what happened or whatever the case may be. Or... And obviously a mayor doesn't prop further because they're invested in it not being a thing because that's better for her. You know what I mean? And it's just like everything about it is, is a mess and just needs to be uprooted and overturned. And, and I think the only way that can happen is through the work that you, Jasmine, and others are doing and, and having allies and accomplices that are putting their bodies on the line for the work as well is just a beautiful thought and sight. And that's the kind of movement that Dr. King was bringing together before he was assassinated. And that's what made him dangerous, you know, because it wasn't just black people lifting their voice anymore. There were white folks saying, you know what, enough is enough. I'm going to, you know, cash this privilege in to protect black bodies and brown bodies and um, and not allow the status quo to continue. And I think that the more that we push, you know, that's when we're going to start to see um, some of this overturning of these uh, broken systems that, that need to be overturned. I, I really like that a lot. I just want to say super quick that I think it's important for us to always remember, and, and, and Jasmine, I think you would agree with this kind of the absurdity of this too, in that police officers are literally funded by our tax dollars. So you are literally being assaulted and brutalized by people that work for you. And I think that's what's wild. And we really need to remember that if a group that we are paying to take care of us fails just one people group or just one person, then the system needs to be looked at and needs to be changed. Because I do not want to pay for men in a very specific colored attire to assault people that look like me. And I think when we really pinpoint that absurdity and even these same employees stopping us from letting them know that we don't like the job that they're doing, assaulting us, brutalizing us just exp for expressing our opinion, that angers me even more. 
And that makes me even want to do more to say, let's let's really overturn this because the root of this is rotten. And doing minimal reform is like how Mike was saying, is it going to do enough? We need to have radical change immediately. I think also what is coming out is it's seeing with people seeing what's happening in Rochester, it's really just dispelling all of the historical myths that when black people came to the North, everything was fine, that, you know, this kind of stuff doesn't wouldn't happen. People like earlier, Mike made a joke earlier today about like Canada and Rochester because of how North it is. Um, but you know, like you can be as close to Canada as you want, but because of the root and the evil in America, there's still going to be uh, the impact of these systems through the segregation of the city, through the fact that local police forces, no matter where they are, are taught how to, are taught to believe that black and brown people are less than, that they don't deserve the same things, that they are inherently bad. And thus through this force, you can reform their character either through brutalizing them or killing them. And so um, I think it's important, especially as a lot of times we highlight big cities and we hear about what's going on in Indy, in Chicago, in DC, in Baltimore, but like this stuff is happening everywhere. It's happening in small towns across the United States. It's happening in the North and in the South. And we really have to realize that unfortunately black and brown bodies are not safe based on location. Uh, I just wanted to quick, oh, sorry. No, I just wanted to quickly say that, um, to point out that I've been out now, you know, for a week and I did go out, you know, even during May um, or the end, um, it's June when we started protesting for Joyce, George Floyd. But just like to piggyback off what you said, the, the organizers, people that I know, some I don't know well at all or don't know at all, they've been doing this all summer. Like even before we found out about Daniel Prude, they have been out here. Before we found out about the mayor's um, involvement, they, you know, did a pull up to her house. Like they have been actively trying to do things all summer to bring awareness. So I'm like, so, and, and I completely agree the same with Buffalo, New York. They haven't had an incident yet, but even because of what's going on in Rochester, Buffalo has like, they've been having protests almost every day as well. Um, but, you know, we're, you know, getting more of the coverage because it happened here. But I 100% agree that a lot of small Towns, grassroots organizations are really working and you know trying to affect change in their community, even if on the national level it's not being seen. The thing I'm also thinking about with this is um, when I first listened to the podcast that Adrian kind of just summarized, my first thought honestly was that this all started with medical racism. Like mm. his brother saw he needs mental health help and support. And he had him sent to a hospital to get that health and that help yeah. and support. Yeah. 
and the doctors said he's fine nothing is wrong and sent him home and the first thing that happened after they sent him home is that he ran out of his house and then there was an, and then all of this happened right and so it just makes me think about how all of these forms of oppression are so interconnected and they all feed into each other all of the time and you i mean you could talk about this from in all sorts of all sorts of angles right like the fact that that black people with mental with mental health um, who need mental health support have negative interactions with police so often is partly because they are not getting the support that they need from the medical system itself where they they don't diagnose us when they're supposed to, mm-hmm. or they overdiagnose diagnose us with things that we that we don't need to be diagnosed with. You can talk about it through the lens of education. I mean, there's just so many things. It just makes me think about how we have to be fighting the fight on all fronts all the time. It's like you can't take it from one angle and dismantle everything. You everything is everything is all supported by each other, and you yeah. have to take it all down. <laughs> Um, which is very daunting and, and depressing, honestly. Um, but I think it's important to keep that at the front of our mind that like the fight that we're fighting, it's not just against police and cops or prisons or it's it's against everything, racism in all all facets of our life. I wanted to touch on something that my sister was saying, just like like the, the gaslighting that, sh- that sh- she and some of the protesters were experiencing. Um, and I think, what can make people feel very um, helpless that can sometimes result in what we see with like the writing, like when the frustration just boils over is a direct reaction to the gaslighting, right? When when you are trying to tread that line of, of you know, following the amendment in a way that's very peacefully, but no one's listening, right? That can feel very, that can feel very frustrating. And when you see so many other powers throughout the system work against you, media coverage, the Democrat and Chronicle, you, you've got um, <clears throat> local businesses that we've learned to love, like Wegmans come out and say, hey, we're going to go out and, and serve food to the police officers where that is not inherently wrong, but it feeds into this, like a, like a narrative that is kind of within the structure of our country that like the police are the good guys and who they are up against are the bad ones. So we, we are going, where, where we prioritize our efforts and resources are going to tell the world who we think are the victims right now, who we think are the protagonists right now. And I think that is part of the frustration is cops are always given a benefit of the doubt of righteousness that is never given to regular citizens, right? But when we, I remember a few weeks ago when we talked about when the FBI came out in 2008 showing how um, a, a number of white nationalists have gotten into police officer roles and they have recruited other people into it we don't talk about how problematic and how dangerous that can be for so many people in the country. And um, um, Michael Barbaro in his daily podcast, he did one about a cop in Detroit and he taught, he's a black guy and he talked about how he learned that so many of his white cop friends 
We're in these racist, white supremacist Facebook groups where they're sharing problematic memes. They're just bouncing back racist ideas, just like releasing all of that racist uh, ideology that they're learning to just consume, bounce back off of each other over and over. And then they take that, bring it to the police force and how they interact with people of color. And when, when you, as a person of color or an ally, come to the realization of all that is so problematic about the police force. And then you see so many people, politicians, media, um, um, local companies back them while then label you as villains. Like it, it is the most frustrating experience that you can have. And, and in no way, Am I going to say like, yeah, like let's all go and riot, but, but it, it is extremely harmful to once again, look at the riot itself and not focus on what pushed decent people to act out of character. And, and that I think has been one of the most heartbreaking things that we've seen the, the, the conversation shift. It, it's no longer about police reform and it's no longer about abolishing or defunding the police. You got people, Fox News, even CNN, they spend so much of their time talking about how is race gonna affect Biden? How is it gonna affect Trump? Um, uh, it, are, are the riots going to hurt Biden's chances of getting reelected? Biden then had to change his rhetoric and go full on with the law and order thing, just like Trump did. And it's like, we're. We are not talking about what these protests are asking for. And when you keep seeing these things happen over and over again, you're like, yo, bump this. I'm going to go out there and break some stuff. Like you're, you're tired of people always pivoting the conversation. And I think that has been the most exhausting thing because it's like, this is what makes people not trust politicians when you're like, yo, you, how long have we been talking about this? And then, you know, we talked about the mayor. Um, she... I, I'm trying to bring up my notes, but she talked about um, later on, she talked about like doing things like um, doubling the availability of mental health professionals, or she removed the family crisis in intervention team from the police department and brought it into the youth and recreation services, right? And on, on surface, when I first listened to the podcast, I'm like, all right, look at that. Like, that's a good change. But then when I thought about it, it's like, yo, why do we keep needing a tragedy to make these incremental changes that are not going to really solve the overarching problem? And and once I kind of snapped out of it, it was just like, bro, like this is bogus. This this doesn't do anything in, in the retrospect of the overwhelming form of a structural problem that is just burdening so many people. And I think that, that it's just it just leaves people so frustrated and turned off because it's like y'all y'all never want to have the conversation that we want to have. I think the other thing that we need to think about too with reform is I think I think that the press and all of us have a bad habit of once a reform is pushed through or passed we sometimes stop paying attention to it and the aftermath of it. And sometimes those reforms that sound positive on the surface or sound like they are going to solve problems actually end up resulting in different forms of the same problem. Yeah. 
um, that same podcast today had an episode on Brianna Taylor mm -hmm. and I won't get into all of it. Everybody should go listen to it. There's a part one and tomorrow is the part two, but essentially detailing how a reform that was made because the police department was getting, was getting um, criticism for a practice they were using where they were pulling over people in parts of town that had a lot of crime and then using those, those, um, interactions to search their cars. And it was this whole thing where they were trying to prevent violent crimes through pulling people over in certain areas. They were like, oh, that's, it's not working. Black people are being targeted because of that practice. So they switched to a different form of policing. And that new practice that they adopted is essentially what led to the raid on Breonna Taylor's house. So I think, and everybody, Everybody go listen to hear how all of that played out because it's insane. But I think that's another thing about reforms is like if if you're gonna push for reform, if that's what you think needs to happen, or if you're if you're like this is what we have to do in the meantime before we can make a huge shift like defunding or like abolishing, we also then need to be following through and paying attention to okay now what is the actual practical implication of the reforms that have been made because things that sound good on the surface in practice oftentimes are not because the whole institution itself is so rotten. And also because the, the, the distribution of the weight of the, the type of crimes that they care about and are paying attention to is always going to result in black people having more interactions with cops in any way, just because of all of the other um, inequalities. So yeah. I just think following through and paying attention to these conversations, even after they've left the news is really important. Yeah, that reform conversation is so um, interesting because oftentimes police reform will get praised by police. And it's, it's, they'll say like, look at what we're doing. And it's like, well, you were shooting innocent people last week and tear gassing them. And now you're, so if you're excited about that, but you were also excited about shooting protesters, I don't, I'm not interested in your, your performative reform. Like that's the, the conversation. And what's really interesting with the conversation that Adrian and Jasmine are having about the gaslighting is that it's, it's all police are trying to do when in the midst of a protest is to change and discredit but drive the narrative. Like they have full control. Reality is, is that Jazz, you've been posting on your social media and Facebook, you know, for the times that you've been out there, but your social media doesn't have the platform that the police social media does. And so when you post something, it may be a perspective of yours, but it's not getting the share value that the police is. And it's what's really interesting is that I always hear in these conversations is that the police and typically like white or more conservative people they, they share the same views, but black and brown people share very different perspectives on the police. And that is always a narrative control because the police are saying, oh, they're throwing rocks and bottles and these things. And, and you know what? Uh, there could be a scenario where some one person, you know, two. But when you talk to the people on the ground, they're saying, no, we're, we're doing poetry. We're, we're singing like we're, we're, we're protesting in a peaceful and like beautiful way. But you're hearing one group that doesn't have the social media power and the other group that does is gaslighting and lying. And they're, you know, when are the police going to come out and say like, yeah, maybe one per police, there's a, you know, a, a situation that happened that they're mad about, but they're like, yeah, but the, the people that came out, they clearly wanted better 
changes in our community. That's why they were doing poetry. That's why they were singing. Like I've never heard police social media praise protests, say protests were successful, that the protests were bringing, you know, positivity. And, you know, it's always this narrative control, you know, resisting arrest is a justification of murder. Criminal record is a justification of resisting arrest and then murder. And we continually like only paint this narrative to essentially discredit anything that is done by or supports black and brown, you know, freedom and their ability to say, we want to exist in this community. And someone made a YouTube comment a little bit ago that said, you know, you should bring in people from these underrepresented communities to be cops. And it's like, no, because these cops are already overrepresented in these underrepresented communities to terrorize them. Why would we ask the people being terrorized to come and be terrorizers? We're saying, no, 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 we need to, to break this structure down to the base foundation, completely rewrite a whole system and not, not necessarily like laws, but how we're going to interact with laws. Because one thing that I've seen with these mental health situations in our country is that people with mental health issues are being killed, murdered by cops because cops are not trained to deal with people with mental health issues. Like, and that's just a police issue. That's not, it doesn't matter what you do if you have a mental health issue and you're being confronted by police. There should never be a time that someone's called and said, my, my family member is struggling with mental health. I, I mean, I get it aside from like someone shooting, but that's not ever the case. It's people that are existing. They're not following orders because they don't have the the physical wherewithal at that moment to follow the orders. And we're like, well, our best, you know, what we're trained to do is shoot you. I mean, that's really what this, oh, well, we'll detain you and suffocate you until you're, you know, not resisting anymore, which just ends in death. And that's like this continued trend is that cops aren't trained for this. They don't have, all they know how to do is gaslight and kill. Like those are their two. And yeah, maybe sometimes it fits in the middle and these terrible things don't happen, but that's the continued story that always comes every single time. And it's like, when are we going to realize that reform done by police isn't going to actually solve a problem because it's the same people that, that want to destroy the lives of these people. I think one thing that is that I think just, I don't know, it surprises me every time is that cops will often agree with the point that they do too much and that they're spread too thin and that they handle too many things. I've heard, repeatedly heard in interviews and conversations, police saying, yep, we agree. We're relied on too much and we have too many things on our, like on our load that we, are, that we are responsible for. We're called on for every type of emergency. We agree, we're not really equipped for everything. We shouldn't be that, that we should not be the go-to for every type of emergency. But they can't, they can never take that extra step to say, and because of that, I agree with the people that are out on the street demanding for us to be defunded and demanding for funds to be reallocated to other departments that can better handle the things that we just admitted were not equipped to handle. And I, I just always, I understand maybe that like the, the us versus them rhetoric that is being used maybe that is making it difficult to get through that barrier of like, oh, actually some of the things that you're suggesting would actually make my life easier. But I just think that 
I, I guess I'm just wondering what is it going to take to get over that and to get to a point where you're like, yes, I agree. And also will advocate for the changes that you want that I also want so that we can actually make this happen. Because yes, people are angry at cops. That That is 100% a lot of the conversation and, and fueling the protesters. But the, the things that they're suggesting are often not detrimental to police departments. Yeah. It is, it's really not detrimental to defund if we're also saying, and now you won't be responsible for all of these things. So I guess I, I, I'm also just confused. Like, so you agree. So what is your proposed solution to the problem that we both agree is happening? Yeah. And I would, I would want to just piggyback off of what Logan said about this, like, like the, the, the performative act that we sometimes see from politicians. But we also see that from, from cops, right? I remember John Oliver, he, he kind of blew my mind when he made this point with, with the incident that happened in Kenosha, where, you know, the, the, the white kid goes out there and he, he shoots some of the protesters. Um, the police chief came out there and was spreading a lot of dangerous rhetoric, not just about his support for the kid, but the language he was using about people of color were just flat out racist. He was making claims of rounding them all up, throwing them all in cells. Like he, he is clearly talking about a specific type of black person and you can hear the, the hatred and vitriol in his voice, right? But John Oliver then went on to show a picture of that same police chief <laughs> kneeling with protesters a couple of months ago in June. So it's like you, I don't trust the words that are coming out of your mouth, right? And, and I think that is what is, all of that fuels the gaslighting when you're like, bro, how are you gonna say that when you were just kneeling with us less than a month and a half ago? I think this this is what also just like it, it all feels like an act to just like calm us down, so to speak, right? And once we've been calmed down, we'll go back to the status quo uh, because this is just like a temporary moment of rage. And once that's gone, uh, we'll just keep going on with, with the, the way that life has been going. Um, and I truly don't, I don't think a lot of white Americans understand the toll that this pandemic has played in, in some ways, amplifying the frustration we experience about systemic racism. The, the way we are indoors, not just that, but like that it's disproportionately affecting people of color. And then you see that people are getting killed in the middle of a pandemic that is also disproportionately affecting people of color. And then you see cops do stuff like that. It's like, it, it is a very exhausting experience to have to go through. And then you are constantly being told to hold a certain moral standard while your country is doing the, the exact opposite toward you. And I, 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 I just want to make that clear that people are tired of that performative kind of, of appreciation that we see 
we, we see Democrats do that a lot with like the kneeling and the kente cloths. Like if you don't take that off, like stop it. You look crusty. Stop doing that. You see it. You see it from like the we hear you, we support you, that rhetoric that we hear from Democrats all, and liberals all the time. But even now, after that moment of that like performative, you see a lot of these white moderates and, and white Democrats kind of slowly pivot back where they're like, all right, you, you guys might have gone too far. And like the, that law and order niche is just always so attractive to them. And when you see that pivot, you see it with that cop in, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and you see it with a lot of politicians and even with ordinary white folk. It feels like we are constantly having to push them out of their comfort zone to care about the cause over and over again. Um, so I just wanted to say something about the like the performative acts. Um, so one thing that happened to us specifically, like I said, Wednesday night, um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, um, all turned, you know, turned crazy because of our interaction with the police. Sunday, um, but yeah, so Sunday, as I said, was the only day that they didn't start to shoot at us and things like that. But they also tweeted out, the protesters have arrived at the public safety building. Let's work together. And we were like, work together? You want to tweet this after four days of shooting us. Now you guys want to say, let's work together. Like, but then the very next day, they started talking about, like started lying again about what we were doing there and then calling it unlawful. So we, just like how Esther was saying, like the confusion, like we're also very confused to the point like protests, like, okay, what type of protest is lawful? What is unlawful? We ourselves as protesters don't know. What are you guys gonna consider okay? What is not okay? Because we haven't changed anything about how we've been protesting. It's just the only thing that's changed is probably the size or the number of people, but what we're doing has not changed. So we're very confused. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting that that report came out this week where it was like 93% of protests were nonviolent that we've seen across the country or more than 93%. But what's funny is when you actually look at people that are on the ground, yeah, so let's be very clear that they're talking about structural damage um at their protest in that seven percent but when we're talking about physical damage to human bodies that's coming from the cops i've witnessed it jazz has witnessed it charlie's witnesses esther's witnessed it like people on the ground that are watching interactions because look we're not dumb enough to attack police at a protest because we're here because they're using their power to kill people like protesters aren't attacking cops like that's not a thing because that's literally just asking for more but but you know i went to a protest in oakland when they had put on the uh curfew that night i think it was for six or seven p.m and the protest went to like 30 minutes before and a group of high school students stayed out and the high school kids got tear gassed we're talking the the kids that that planned uh, it was literally a, there was nothing like even it wasn't anything it was actually almost parade like performative it was like and they're tear gassing cops and they're talking about uh, oh, you know, these are violent protests. And it's like, no, no, the violence is only coming at the hands of the cops. And so when we start to talk about some now, now I'm not saying only there's, I'm sure that there's situations not to see here, but what I've seen and what people are seeing is that the, the violence against actual people 
you know, people going to the hospital, people needing treatment, people needing medics, that's coming from police. That's not coming from protesters every single time. And it's funny because the only thing that cops know is to be violent. And in that whole situation, they're using that violence towards us to say that protesters are the ones being violent, so we shouldn't uh, support Black Lives Matter. And it's it's just such a backwards, twisted logic, but it's so wild that the only harm to bodies is coming at the hands of cops. Hmm. Those have been a lot of... Uh... Those have been a lot of great thoughts, guys. I really appreciate everyone sharing and really appreciate you guys kind of giving your thoughts on what's happening in Rochester. And Jasmine, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and then we know you have to go put a little Ethan to bed, which yeah, let me just say he's an incredible child. And I cannot wait to call him names. I FaceTime him later. Again. But... <laughs> Let them know we're gonna be out there every single well, night. Jasmine, though. thank you so much. Everyone know every until mm -hmm. we get justice. So it's not gonna stop. Excellent, excellent. Thank you so much. So, guys, uh, we're gonna just pivot real quick to the next topic with the time that we have left. Uh, Mike, I understand that um, Trump has removed or ended diversity because he called diversity a liberal hoax. And I understand that you take great offense to this because you are the diversity and inclusion officer at Andrews and your blood was boiling. And uh, please tell us a little bit more about what Trump was doing and, uh, and what him calling diversity training a hoax really means. Well, yeah, I, I guess the actual quote was, and I was kind of being facetious here. He probably said this too, though. I didn't even really listen to what he said. I read about it, but um, he essentially said that diversity training is un-American. And so he um, banned in particular um, critical race theory um, and conversations around intersectionality from diversity trainings, federal diversity trainings. Um, ironically, like, you know, the, the statement in and of itself that diversity training is un-American is actually a very accurate statement because, you know, we don't talk about this stuff in America at all. And so in, in some ways, oh, diversity training, that's a foreign concept. It literally is a foreign concept to definitely the federal government, uh, which was, uh, behind much of the architecture of the system of racism that we see in this country, and I dare say globally. Um, so uh, essentially, there, there are a couple things here um, as far as reasons for this. It's pretty clear, as, which, as with much of what Trump does, that he's trying to play to his base. Um, one, one article that, that I saw, which was actually featured on The Griot, um, uh, and the, the author there, she pointed out that um, according to a recent Pew Research poll, only 59% of white evangelicals strongly approve of Trump's job performance currently. And what's, what's key about that is that that's actually down 8% from April 2020. And so that number has been steadily declining. Of course, as we know, the white evangelical conservative block, voting block. I mean, that is his constituency. 
that that those are um, the you know the persons that give him any sort of chance to be reelected. And what's really ironic to me, and so now when you think about some of the recent comments he's made, I think we talked briefly a couple weeks ago about his comment towards um, you know suburban housewives and how they're going to protect. We're not going to put affordable housing units in your suburban communities, things of that nature. He's now trying to ban um, anti-racism training and you know critical race theory training and things of that nature. Um, and, and that was you know greeted immediately uh, with uh, pleasure from white conservative evangelical leaders. Uh, John MacArthur, chief among them. Um, if you're still a fan of John MacArthur, what are you doing? Uh, I'll just say that. Uh, what are you doing? Have you been paying attention recently? Um, he he essentially posted, uh, it would be folly to pretend the social justice movement poses no threat whatsoever to evangelical conviction. He's also oftentimes talked very publicly about his distaste for critical race theory uh, and conversations around intersectionality. Uh, one of the other things I thought that was interesting about this particular article, and again, I'll post it here in the comments, is that um, you know, there's been a lot of conversation from conservative uh, evangelical Christians in particular um, critiquing things like Black Lives, the Black Lives Matter movement. And of course, now, uh, you know, critical race theory, anti-racism training, things of that nature. And oftentimes what we'll hear is that these ideas are rooted in Marxism and secularism. And so therefore they need to be rejected. Uh, but one of the things that was pointed out in this article was that uh, the idea of intersectionality in particular was actually originally developed by a black evangelical Christian woman by the name of Maria Stewart back in 1831, where she was writing and speaking publicly about ending racism and sexism. So she was talking about how as a black woman, those two identities uh, work to subjugate her to even more oppression. And it wasn't until you know 17 years later that your boy Karl Marx even picked up a pen. And so these ideas are actually rooted in the black Christian tradition um, on, of course, uh, <laughs> and it reminded me, uh, you know, my mentor, Christina Cleveland, she was wearing a shirt the other day that black women did it first. And it's another reminder of that, that whatever it is you're thinking about or talking about, black women did it first. And, and so, um, I think obviously people like John MacArthur are learning that a black evangelical Christian woman is actually the architect of ideas like intersectionality wouldn't make him like it anymore. He just have to be more overt with his racism because this whole thing about Marxism and stuff is just a cover for the racism that's embedded in white conservative evangelical Christianity. Um, I, I think I've talked about it before, but other Pew research shows that right now, uh, the more days a week you go to church, the more likely you are to be racist. And so to me, this was less about Donald Trump because, I mean, this this was like, not, I mean, I'm a DNI professional. There were a lot of DNI professionals that were really upset about it. I'm on a bunch of like email chains and, oh, we got to clap back at Trump. And it's like, is this, this is not groundbreaking. Like Trump doesn't like diversity training. I think I posted this actually. Also, water is wet. Like, who cares? You know what I mean? Like I, I have no, I have no interest in his opinion on this topic because he has zero knowledge about the topic. And so, I mean, it's dangerous because he's the president. So I guess we do have to 
you know, talk about it. Um, but at the end of the day, I think what we need to be more concerned about is why he's doing it. And it, and it speaks to the fact that he knows that in particular, evangelical conservative Christians will be more likely to vote for him because of the fact that he is trying to ensure that uh, professionals in the federal government aren't better trained to be more inclusive, to, to be anti-racist, to believe in equity, uh, which I, I don't know that there's ever been a more critical time as far as it being in the public discourses right now. And of course, as is typical with Donald Trump, we can count on him to do the exact opposite thing that's necessary at any given moment on any given issue. And this is just another example of that. And so I'd love to hear you all's thoughts on uh, diversity and, and it being a liberal hoax. <laughs> um, I thought it was super, when I heard about this, I thought it was interesting because growing up as a student in the United States of America, all of everything in my younger years was about how diverse America is and how like we're not a homogenous country yet we're still able to function. And so for so long, at least like in my lifetime, diversity was praised as an American value. You know, the Statue of Liberty of people coming to America and like becoming part of this great dream from all over the world, you know? And so it's very interesting that now this concept of diversity is no longer American, which at its core it is, but that's not what American's narrative has been for so long. So I think what we're seeing is this, this shift in what America is portraying itself as. We're seeing now like what we knew America was versus what the world saw America as. And then now there's no hiding it anymore. You know, when you have a, a head of state that is willing to say, we don't need to know about diversity essentially, or we don't care about diversity. It shows which of the American people the head of state cares about. Because, I mean, majority of America, majority of his base is not reflective of the rest of the of the country. And so, yeah, like the president doesn't care about diversity. Cool. We knew that. But now he made sure everyone else knew that, too. I um, I also just... I remember, I don't know what training this was. I think when I joined TFA or City Year, I don't, I've done so many education nonprofits and all their training is the same. But um, one of the things that they would bring up in our DEI sessions, diversity, equity, and inclusion, was this idea of diversity is neutral. It's not like this glowing positive thing and it's not a negative thing. It's just a neutral thing that can happen in existing spaces, but it doesn't always necessarily make those spaces inherently better. And I was thinking about that and how this idea of diversity being this glowing, amazing, positive thing, that is actually an idea that people of color, like, were not out here toting that idea. That sort of language started coming out during the fight for integration in the North 
when the North was trying to say, yeah, like we're not like those segregated Southern states down there. We're up here, we're better, we're integrated, we're diverse. Everybody up here is together and happy all the time. Obviously this was all false, but it was this idea. And I, I mean, especially when you talk about like the fight to integrate schools, Schools in the North were putting out ads like, look at us, all of these people to, who are, you know, from different places, different colors, different languages together. We're better than them. Meanwhile, they were very segregated. Um, but this idea that that diversity came like this idea of diversity and fighting for diversity came from us is false. Any any fight for integration was not based on the virtue of diversity. It was based on well, this is the only way that things can be fair for us. Like if things were actually separate but equal, literally, I don't know if we would have seen that same push for integration. That push came because we were like, okay, well, we can't be by ourselves and also be treated the same. So we have to fight to be included in your spaces, not because we want to be included and because we believe that diversity is this thing that we need to attain and achieve. We just want to have the resources that we know we could have access to if we are in proximity to whiteness. So this even it's just a false idea to say that the left and the liberals are the ones that came up with this idea. No, diversity was pushed as a way to actually prevent people fighting for integration to get the resources that they wanted mm -hmm. to get through integration. They put out these false ideas of their institutions saying, yeah, we're diverse here in order to not have to make any actual institutional changes that would provide the necessary resources to black and brown communities that weren't getting them because they weren't in proximity to white people. So it's just it's just false. I, I honestly don't know that many people of color in my circles that are like, yep, I want to constantly be in extremely diverse spaces with white people. Like, I don't know people that say that. I, it's, I, I personally do not feel that urge most of the time. So diversity as this glowing positive thing, I, no, and we are, we're not the ones who came up with it. That was propaganda that came from the other side. And I want to just piggyback off of what Nixon said earlier, just like how American um, Trump statements were, uh, because I saw this was happening before, <clears throat> excuse me, but it's somewhat kind of like resurrected um, like the hatred that we saw um, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones go through after she released her 1619 project. And I was floored when I saw that. Now, obviously you knew like the racists were gonna hate it. Even the moderates, I, I was con confused because as I'm listening to it, I'm like, the way she is outlining this history makes chronological and historical sense, right? She She's not stating opinions. She She's bringing documented cases, facts, numbers, data, research. And I think it shows um, how any infringement on the perceived perfection that we've been taught America has is gonna be met with so much vitriol. And we, we see that happen where Trump, he uh, quoted somebody's tweet talking about banning 1619 from schools. And I think that that feeds into it. Like any form of, of effort to show there is more to our country's history 
than the, the, the perfect liberating everyone is welcome society that we like to preach or the narrative that we have always been the protagonist in every story is it, just false. And you, you see that hatred come out when efforts like the 1619 Project come out and it shows how uh, truly un-American things like that are because the America we're used to living in is one where our country is not flawed. Yeah, for sure. That's like, it, it's funny with Trump because like the white supremacist doesn't like diversity training. Oh, yeah, go figure. But I say that kind of like tongue in cheek, but it's kind of this continued thing that Trump has done throughout his, his time in office where he tries to discredit terms. And now, you know, you hear it, if you ever see a conservative, a Trump supporter on Facebook or something being called a racist, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm a racist now because it's like, no, no, no I called you a racist because what you said was racist. But we've discredited all these words to where it's like you can't call someone racist. Now you have to try to use some other way. And, and you know, I, I've seen it a lot, you know, because I, I'm, I'm from in Missouri, where we had the race protest back in 2015, and we hired a diversity inclusion um, president out of that VP, and you know everyone's like, "Oh, it's a hoax position; it doesn't even do anything." And I, you know, Nixon, you're you're privy to all this. You get to be told that I'm sure um, at different points. I've actually been present when people are like, "What do you even do?" And and it's funny because it's all these people that are just trying to continually push this narrative that it's all just like words don't matter, and you know if is because um, racism has been such like a normal thing in our society for so long that it's even difficult for some people to point it out. We have discredited it with these like racist people have discredited it to be like, yeah, if we convince people that racism doesn't actually exist, it's like not a big deal. But it's funny because someone um, said on a Facebook post that I was reading that they were like, oh, diversity training is just an attack on white fragility anyways. And I was like, yeah, white man, it is an attack on what you're literally showing us is your white fragility that's so like steeped in this idea that the only norm in society is the American culture. And it's just like, look, it, it's it's a lie. It's 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 like a, an all boys school having women kind of start girls start to come to the school and they're like, eh, nothing changes. We shouldn't even have a women's bathroom. Like, it's just like, these things don't, like, it doesn't make sense. It always makes sense to care about someone's history, where they were, where they're going, and learning from that. Because in reality, if, and I, and I always say this, if you count four rocks, two rocks and two rocks, you get four rocks. If you count two sticks and two sticks, you get four sticks. If you count two mangoes and two mangoes, you get four mangoes. But those are all different things that you could be counting. The way people do and learn things should be valuable. And you should realize that that life is different and that we should embrace that and love that. But instead of learning, Trump is just continually going to destroy narratives to try to convince people that he's like the greatest president for African-Americans that we've ever seen since you know the beginning of time or i don't know it's just it's just stupid he's just an idiot but <laughs> i like esther's well, face <laughs> well thank you everyone for sharing before we close today we're going to once again do our pmi which of course stands for 
piqued my interest. That is where we share a movie, film, book, TV show, song, even a time where you had an interesting thought when you stubbed your toe that piqued your interest this week. Esther, we're going to start with you, if you could share with us. Yeah, my PMI, it's a book um, by Shane Bauer called American Prison. Um, Real quick, it's essentially this reporter who has a very unique perspective on prison because he was actually imprisoned in, I think, Iran for two years in solitary confinement. Um, He was eventually released, obviously, came back to the States, um, but then shortly after his return, decided he wanted to report on American prisons. And so for three months, he went undercover in um, a private prison in Kentucky as a prison guard. Um, and then wrote this book detailing his experiences there with the training, um, his uh, the fellow guards, prisoners. Um, and it's uh, so far from what I've read, an amazing indictment of the especially private prison um, industry, I don't know, in America. Um, and really just drawing the lines between slavery and how prisons function today with the, from a very intimate perspective because he was living it himself. Thank you so much. Danny, could you go for us next, please? Yes. Uh, my PMI is actually an album. Uh, it is called Hymns of Spirit by a group called Beautiful Chorus uh, for amazing women who create music that remind us all that there's spaces of, of peace within ourselves and that peace is always accessible. Um, it's just been really good listening to this album and any of their other music because with everything going on, I've definitely been in need of some peace in my life and spaces of stillness. So um, with if you just need some peace in your life, which is probably everyone, check out a beautiful chorus, hymns of spirit. So yeah, something for everyone. Thank you. And Logan, could you share your PMI this week, please? Sure. Um, I picked up a book recently that I'm just kind of diving into. It's called We Want to Do More Than Survive by Bettina Love. Um, it's an abolitionist teaching and the pursuit of educational freedom. Um, just to now starting to get into it, Tina's love is like great. I love listening to her interviews and just kind of her media. She's just a really good mix of like informed and educated, but also like funny. And she just throws in so much to, so I'm kind of excited about digging into it. It's a pretty slim book. I'll drop it in the comments, but you, if you're looking for a, a, an easy and fun read, go ahead and pick that up. Excellent. And Mike, could you share your PMI for us, please? Yes, I've been um, cracking back out um, this compilation by MLK, Why We Can't Wait. Um, Really powerful and have really been um, fueling my soul recently. And I love the quote that he includes on the front here. Freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Um, and so, thank you. And Adrian, could you share your PMI, please? Yeah. So, this is one that um, I, I have given before, but I just wanted to reiterate it. Um, the 1619 Project that Nicole Hannah Jones um, created, wrote, produced, um, does a phenomenal job at kind of 
you know, exposing the thought of like, why does everything have to do with race? And she does a great job of showing how race is vital to so many aspects of the American experience, um, history, culture, music, food, literally everything. Um, and I think it's it's fitting for the rhetoric we're kind of seeing coming from our president right now. Um, and so if you're interested in expanding on your understanding of um, the connection that race has to so many aspects of American life, this would be the podcast for you to listen to. Perfect. And my PMI is a tiny sees first run of Black Panther, which started in 2016. It's very good. I put the first volume as the link, but if you have the Marmo Limited app, this is not a uh, an ad. I would suggest the app if you really want to delve into a different kind of storytelling. They have some really great Black creators on there. So check that out. Guys, thank you so much for joining us for another affirmative interaction. Uh, we're so glad that you can join us, that you could join us rather, and interact and let us know what is on your mind and really dig into the topic of uh, today. So thank you for affirming our interaction. And we'll see you next week, same place, same time. Bye-bye. See you all. Register to vote.